Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I am the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference. Okay, I don't want to waste too much time with announcements this episode because we do have one of our favorite guests coming up. So, check out CanMedEvents.com for all the latest information about the CanMed 24 Innovation and Investment Summit happening this May in Marco Island, Florida. Speakers, poster presenters, networking events, panels, workshops, it's all there at CanMedEvents.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for email alerts because we do have a few more announcements coming out, and if you're on the list, you won't miss those. If you're planning to join us in Florida this May, please buy your tickets now. Space is limited this year in the venue and the rooms are filling up. You don't want to miss out. And if you can't join us, you can still stay connected with us on social media or via the podcast. And of course, you can always enjoy all of the past CanMed presentations in our CanMed video archive at CanMedEvents.com. Okay, our guest this episode is Dr. Ethan Rousseau. Ethan is a board-certified neurologist, psychopharmacologist, and founder and CEO of Credo Science. He is an internationally recognized authority on cannabis medicine, and he has authored or edited seven books and has published more than 60 peer-reviewed articles. He also holds director or advisor positions with several cannabis therapeutics companies, and he was instrumental in developing Sativex for pain and MS and Epidiolex for intractable epilepsy while at GW Pharmaceuticals. At CAMED 24, Ethan will present Cannabinoid Hyperemesis Syndrome, Unraveling the Gordian Knot. And during our conversation, we discuss what is CHS and who does it affect, why cases of CHS appear to be on the rise, possible genetic markers that could indicate CHS susceptibility, steps cannabis users can take to prevent developing CHS, why some people in the cannabis community don't believe CHS is a real thing, and much more. Before we get to my conversation with Ethan, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, Cannabis Nurses Network. Established in 2015, the Cannabis Nurses Network is a professional nursing and professional development organization for nurses around the globe. By educating nurses on the science behind the plant and providing a global nursing network, nurses are supported and empowered to implement their knowledge within the community. For more information, go to CannabisNursesNetwork.com. All right, and without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Ethan Russo. Good morning, Ethan. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. So first off, I just want to say that we are excited to have you back for CanMed 24, and we are so grateful that you continue to participate in the event each year and serve on our advisory board, Processing Abstracts. 
And I know that you're also going to be a part of the medical practicum this year, along with Bonnie Goldstein and Dustin Sulak and Eloise Thiessen, which was already an all-star lineup, but you're adding to that, which is fantastic. And just thanks again for being such a big part of CanMed over the years. We couldn't do it without you. And I know that a lot of people attend each year just to have the chance to learn from you and connect with you at the meals and the networking events. So thanks again. You're welcome. It's one of my favorites. Excellent. We're happy to hear that. So today we are going to talk about cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, which you will be presenting about at CanMed 24 in May. It's an important topic. It's a controversial topic in some ways and appears to be a growing problem. But before we get into all of that, I'm sure there are some people watching or listening who aren't familiar with CHS. So can you give us a rundown? Sure. So this is a condition that was first published in 2004 in Australia um, based on several cases with an index case going back to 1996. Now, what's interesting is Usually when something's reported for the first time, you have a real evolution of the description. However, they nailed it pretty much from the start. So what they were describing was a situation in which uh, chronic cannabis users uh, developed a syndrome in which they had nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, often cyclic, that seemingly was relieved by hot water bathing. And some of the patients involved would spend hours in the tub or the shower um, to try and relieve symptoms. Um, so uh, this gradually has become more frequent. Either ascertainment has improved or uh, what many of us think is that it's become more prevalent over time with the greater prevalence of high-potency cannabis materials. And this seems mainly tied to THC. But we should point out that it's really an issue with any CB1, cannabinoid 1 receptor agonist, because the problem has also been described in people who are using some of the synthetics, uh, the high-potency synthetic CB1 agonists, in total absence of cannabis usage. Uh, so clearly, that's the problem. Um, yeah, there've been other people that thought or would like to attribute this to pesticide exposure, but certainly people get this even with organically grown cannabis, um, and like it or not, cannabis is the culprit here. Okay. Um, so these bouts with vomiting now, as I understand it, this isn't just sort of like an acute response where, you know, you kind of have one episode. It, this is. This is going on for quite some time, hours, sometimes days. Yeah, that's an important distinction. Anyone can get sick from cannabis if they have exposure all of a sudden to too high a THC level. Mm. So I, I think many people have had the experience of uh, using a vape for the first time or having an edible that was too powerful and actually getting sick. So this is part of the problem. It's sort of counterintuitive to people because everybody knows that you use cannabis, at least in low dosages, to treat nausea and vomiting associated with chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make sense to people that you can have this 
reaction that seems illogical. However, it's very consistent with what we know about cannabinoids, that they have what's called a biphasic dose response curve. Now to break that down, it means that a lot of the cannabinoids will have one activity at a low dose and an opposite activity at a much higher dose. And so that explains how people can get sick from THC acutely. But that's quite different from CHS, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, because that is a subacute or chronic problem where people um, will have these increasing bouts of attacks of nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. Um, and uh, basically, they go on until they abstain. Um, as we'll get into, there are treatments for it, but uh, they're a little um, different than what we'd expect as well. Right. And so, you know, you describe sort of this cyclic vomiting, and there is a condition, cyclic vomiting syndrome, which has a lot of similarities to CHS, yes? Yeah, I don't like to think that they're similar. Uh, this is a really distinct diagnosis. So uh, cyclic vomiting syndrome um, is something that usually appears in children. Um, right. And what will happen is with no apparent reason, uh, a child will uh, develop nausea and vomiting. Now, what's interesting about this is it, it seems to be what's called a form frust, frustrated form of migraine. So these are people that go on subsequently to develop more classic migraine symptoms. And almost invariably, there is a family history of migraine. So this responds to prophylactic treatment for migraine. Um, I went In my career as a pediatric neurologist, I actually treated a six-month-old. Uh, his pediatrician was sharp enough to realize that we've got these episodic vomiting uh, situations, strong family history, could it be cyclic vomiting? So we used a benign drug called cyproheptadine just at night in a low dose, and the problem disappeared. Uh, so that was sort of a confirmation. The interesting thing is there can be some overlap. Um, uh, this is a situation in which older people who continue with the cyclic vomiting sy symptoms benefit from cannabis because cannabis helps with migraine. So for the non-discerning clinician that's not asking the right questions, these two conditions can get confused. And one other point I'd like to make about this. Uh, in cyclic vomiting syndrome, there has been a mutation that has been noted in the CB1 receptor gene, which is something we did not find um, in the CHS patients, at least uh, in the sample that we had. Uh, so this is a, a diagnostic um, distinction between the two syndromes as well. Interesting. No, and you, and you mentioned that the some physicians may incorrectly diagnose CHS as CVS. Um, and so, and I think you alluded to it earlier that you know, this could be the reason why we're seeing cases of CHS get larger as more clinicians are sort of becoming aware of it. Um, is that one of the reasons why it, it's climbing? And actually, I think you already addressed that. I think my question was going to be, how many cases are we seeing now? And how how has that kind of grown? 
Sure. So they're wildly divergent estimates. Um, there was a gastroenterology uh, survey of some kind, and they estimated that nationally in the U.S., there were probably 350,000 people that had this. Wow. There was another study with really questionable methodology. It was done at Bellevue Hospital in New York City, um, and they talked to people who did not come in for CHS, asked them about their cannabis usage and whether they ever uh, took hot showers to reduce nausea. And based on that, they made an estimate of two and a half million people in the U.S., as if New York City was somehow representative of the country at large. It doesn't wash. Um, I think that there are a lot of people that are affected like this. The true figure is probably somewhere in between, but we honestly don't know. And this is something we want to study more closely. Uh, we're currently putting together a, a consortium of people in different disciplines to try and, and mount a, a bigger study. Um, yeah, so it, it, it's very hard to say. Um, Clearly, we know who's at risk, and this would be people who are using uh, a lot of cannabis. Generally, um, in a sur our survey, which was the biggest to date of over 500 people, um, the average usage in the folks with a diagnosis of CHS was four grams a day of herbal material. Uh, and, you know, it was a mixed thing. Some people smoked, some vaporized. M mainly it was smoking mm. and almost exclusively of high THC material. So is this getting more frequent? Well, we need to consider various factors. One I alluded to earlier, and that was it for sure is the case that the availability of high THC potency material has increased nationally. So that that certainly is a factor. The other is um, there is an increasing recognition of CHS, so it may be more readily, readily diagnosed. But at the same time, there is an overdiagnosis possibility because it, we've heard of many cases in which someone comes into the emergency room and they've got nausea and vomiting. The question is asked, do you use cannabis and if the answer is yes, they're pegged, um, probably inappropriately as having this. That again is bad medicine. That's a byproduct of the pressure that physicians are under to see everybody in 10 minutes or less. Um, you're lucky to get somebody to touch you these days uh, because of an over-reliance on technology. Um, but anyway, another topic. <laughs> right. So going back to sort of the, the heavy usage and kind of defining that. So you said four grams. Now, is that like of the actual weight of um, the cannabis or is that like the actual like if you were going to have it be milligrams of THC, like it's 4000 milligrams of THC? Yeah, we could break it down. But then you get into the whole thing of the bioavailability. You know, we know that a gram of cannabis, if it were 20 percent, um uh, THC, it doesn't, it, people aren't getting 200 milligrams of THC when they smoke. It's a fraction of that. It, it's probably more like 30 milligrams, which is still plenty. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, 
I guess an, an interesting question is, is there a threshold amount? Right. This begins. Clearly not. And it varies mm. from person to person. But one pattern is that this often will develop after a period of time. In other words, um, you don't necessarily get it the first time you get involved with cannabis. Usually it follows some period of escalation of dose with a development of tolerance. And that's a particular risk with vape pens with their high potency, uh, because even users admit that uh, they're often using more to chase a certain level of high that they desire. Uh, so that places people at risk, clearly. But there are no uh, sure cutoffs, uh, you know, a point below which you're okay and above mm. which you're at risk. It's It's not that cut and dried. Yeah, another thing that stood out to me too is that at least in the survey that you had, the the vast majority of folks were inhaling cannabis, whether smoking or doing vaporization. Do we also see symptoms or CCHS emerge from edibles? Yeah, you sure can. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, when it gets into the brain, it doesn't discern whether it was got got there through the digestive tract or the respiratory tract. So, um, yeah. It's, it's more likely, much more likely with smoking because that's what typically people do. Additionally, with smoking, you get a very rapid upward peak on the dose response, uh, whereas with oral uh, administration, it's a slower onset. Um, so smoking clearly uh, is more likely to produce ups and downs that lead to repetitive dosing that will lead to tolerance more readily. Um, but uh, people should not think that they're immune from susceptibility to this by eating uh, cannabis products. Okay. And now, I wonder if you could kind of explain what we think is sort of going on here. Because I'm, again, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a physician, but there is mention of, you know, down regulation of the CB1 receptor. Um, so explain that. Well, uh, the way our receptors work is if they're getting um, too much input, they will involute, sort of fold back in or become inactive. Um, now, if there's too much of that, it means that you actually will be deficient in endocannabinoid function. Right. So, I mean, that's one theory. The problem, we know that this happens. You know, that's been demonstrated through animal work that if you keep exposing the animal to high amounts of THC or CB1 agonists, that their receptors are going to reduce in number or become inactive. Um, however, this is not something that's easily studied in humans. Um, we don't, you know, for instance, you could look at endocannabinoid levels in the serum, but that doesn't necessarily tell you what's going on in the brain. Additionally, that's very hard to study um, because the endocannabinoids in the blood are extremely unstable. Uh, blood sample has to be immediately put under liquid nitrogen and gotten to a specialty lab, and it's just not commonly done. Hmm. Similarly, um, there's the possibility of using positron emission tomography, uh, an extremely expensive and not widely available test, um, to assess receptor function in the brain. But again, this hasn't been done on CHS, and it's really embryonic at this stage. 
in terms of its development. Similarly, you could try to look at um, anandamide or 2-AG levels in the spinal fluid by doing a lumbar puncture or spinal tap, but um, that's not something you do on everybody. No. Um, yeah, so right now that's theoretical. But what we can tell now, um, you know, so between 2004 and the present, there wasn't a lot of explanation of what CHS was from. Now, there have been, again, studies that showed that a marked upregulation of the hypothalamic pituitary um, system. Um, so basically, stress responses. Now, you bet. If you're in pain and you're nauseated and vomiting, you got stress. But, I mean, this is really serious stress. Um, this isn't, you know, simple situation of, of vomiting a couple of times because of a virus. Um, people lose weight. Um, they get marked abnormalities uh, sometimes of electrolytes, you know, the mm -hmm. mineral balance in the blood. And there have actually been two deaths attributed to this because of how bad the vomiting was from CHS. Um, so, you know, there are certain markers, but until um, recently, we didn't have an explanation for this. Why does one person get it and another one doesn't? So this is the reason we wanted to examine it with the hypothesis that perhaps Certain people have a genetic susceptibility to this. So that's what we wanted to test. Um, so uh, with Endocana Health, uh, we put together a study, uh, starting with a survey, again, of over 500 people. And um, we, for entry as a CHS patient, we had very strict criteria. We didn't want there to be mistakes. So first thing was, they had to carry a diagnosis of CHS. In other words, somebody had seen them and said that this wasn't what it was. Um, then additionally, they had to have active symptoms. We didn't want people in that may have been misdiagnosed as having CHS, but were okay now. In other words, they didn't really have it. Hmm. Um, so that whittled things down. Um, we... Um, we got it down to uh, uh, something like 200 candidates and um, they were offered um, genetic testing, which is done with a swab in the mouth um, to look at the DNA. Uh, unfortunately, there was a lot of attrition between step two and step three uh, because only 28 CHS, confirmed CHS patients returned the kit after all of them had said that they wanted it. Hmm. Uh, the reason for that was we had a great deal of pushback from the CHS online community. There were people that questioned our motives, um, thought we were in this for the money, um, didn't like our methodology for one reason or another. And so there was an active movement to uh, tell people not to participate. Um, mm -hmm. So that wasn't helpful. Um, and then we needed to compare them to, to somebody. So there were some people who took the survey that were high uh, volume cannabis users, um, interestingly, about the same, four grams a day, 
who didn't have CHS symptoms and didn't have a diagnosis. So th those were the comparison groups. Um, what we found was a little surprising. So the first hypothesis was, well, there's got to be a problem with the CB1 gene, the gene that codes for the CB1 receptor. Um, we didn't see that. As mentioned previously, you do see that in uh, cyclic vomiting syndrome. So instantly we had a uh, uh, difference between the two syndromes. We also hypothesized two other things, that it could be a problem with the metabolism of THC, how it's broken down. We did get confirmation of that because there was a statistically significant difference in a mutation in a um, CYP2C9 gene between the CHS patients and the heavy users of cannabis that didn't have symptoms. So CYP2C9 is the um, enzyme in the liver that breaks down THC. So you might understand if there were a mutation there, perhaps that it wasn't as efficient in breaking down THC, that levels would be higher, and this could produce this funny reaction. Um, the third um, hypothesis that we had was that there would be an issue with the TRPV1, TRPV1 gene. We thought of that because one of the interesting things about CHS is that hot water exposure seems to help. And interestingly, something else that's hot, application of capsaicin ointment on the skin, the active ingredient in chili peppers also temporarily relieves symptoms. Uh, that turned out to be the case too. Again, we saw a statistically significant difference uh, in the number of mutations seen in the CHS patients in the TRPV1 gene as compared to the high volume cannabis users without CHS. Um, so uh, then there were a couple of things we hadn't uh, hypothesized. There were two genes related to dopamine metabolism with abnormalities. Uh, one was uh, for the gene that codes the dopamine type two uh, receptor. Um, this is an interesting uh, receptor in that it's the target for antipsychotic drugs. Um, and um, when people have a mutation there, as we saw in the CHS patients, they're at risk for a whole bunch of things. Um, addiction to other substances, um, also uh, risk for psychosis and other psychiatric issues to, to a strong degree, mm -hmm. uh, whether it be um, depression, anxiety, et cetera. There was also a mutation in what's called the COMT, catechol-O-methyltransferase gene. This is the gene that breaks down dopamine. Um, and again, if uh, there were a problem there, um, you might uh, get a buildup of dopamine that would um, provoke addictive uh, behavior or that kind of thing. Right. And then there was one uh, that made sense though, because all of what we've mentioned so far um, sort of, um, it informs the symptomatology and phenomenology of CHS, meaning that it helps explain some of the symptoms. Um, uh, you know, uh, 
TRPV1, uh, among other things, has to do with propulsion in the gut. If things aren't moving, you'll tend to vomit. Um, it also is in the brain and is associated with anxiety and pain. Um, so uh, things begin to make a lot more sense. But the fifth mutation that we saw was something we had not expected. Um, this is a gene called ABCA1. It has to do with cholesterol metabolism. And this one's a little ominous because people who have mutations on this gene may be susceptible to a number of problems later in life, specifically coronary artery disease, type 2 diabetes mellitus, um, and Alzheimer's disease. So we do not know yet, um, because this hasn't been around yet, are folks with CHS that have this mutation at greater risk for these disorders? The answer is quite possibly yes. So this takes on another dimension of public health uh, relevance that we really need to be examining. Hmm. So, yeah, so a lot of different genes kind of in play here. So it's, it sounds like they might have some mutations that sort of give them a propensity to over maybe overuse or become reliant on cannabis, which would get them into the higher dose range to sort of trigger this, and then also have additional mutations that might bring on these symptoms. Is that, sure. that right? Yeah, it's exactly right. And now, uh, certainly before and in the interim, we've had uh, the occasion to hear from a lot of people at CHS. And for better or worse, a lot of them have had substance abuse issues with other drugs. Um, so what we have seen and heard corroborates uh, the genetic findings. Right. And now, is the thought that, you know, genetic screening could be used to sort of inform folks like you might be at risk at this, you know, kind of proceed with caution or? Yeah, I think that would be reasonable. Let's envision a, a, a scenario in which um, we have a teenager and his older brother has had problems with CHS. Um, he's under peer pressure to start using cannabis. Um, might be a good idea to, to use this as a screening device. And we should make a distinction there. This isn't a diagnostic test per se where, um, you know, your blood sugar is above a certain level. What we're looking at here is a tendency. Mm. Uh, for example, we could have someone that had mutations on all five genes, and there were some patients that had this, but if they never exceeded a certain threshold of cannabis usage, they might never have a problem with nausea and vomiting. Uh, they'd be at risk, but that doesn't mean that they'd be have the syndrome. Um, so again, um, the trigger is having the symptom scenario uh, that fits the description. Great. Now, I did want to, we've kind of touched on it a bit, but I wanted to maybe ask directly. So as far as treatments go, we've mentioned capsaicin. Um, I know that there's others, but as I understand it, the only real cure for this is to abstain from cannabis. And is that one must abstain for the rest of their lives? Or is there a certain um, layoff period that then they can kind of resume cannabis? How does that work? Well, we've seen this scenario repeatedly uh, where somebody has CHS, they stop for a while, the symptoms abate, 
and then they go back to cannabis. Um, and almost invariably, um, they have a relapse into CHS. Um, people can go a long time. I mean, we've heard of people stopping for six months, sort of edging back in, uh, you know, and they might do okay for a while. Um, but, you know, if they, again, uh, start to edge up on the dosage and develop tolerance, then they're likely to get hit again. Now, another issue is, can they use other types of cannabis? We tried to see, uh, advise people to try, well, you know, try CBD only products and see what happens. Right. What we usually heard was they did okay for a time, but then things came back. Now that's complicated from a scientific standpoint by the fact that most pure CH CBD products aren't pure CBD. Um, you know, it's one of the funny things about the plant that the enzyme that, that makes CBD, uh, CBDA synthase, also makes THC in small amounts. Um, so the plant does that. And uh, as we know, lab analyses are not always reliable in this field. Um, and so a lot, we'll call it in this instance, a lot of CBD preparations are contaminated with THC that isn't necessarily supposed to be there. So we don't know the answer to that yet. Hmm. Would it be possible that there are other components of cannabis that could help with this or be utilized um, that don't provoke the problem? I think the answer is, is sure possible, uh, but we don't know that yet. And so the only reasonable advice is once somebody has this, is our recommendation is to abstain from cannabis. And again, I'd emphasize um, that this has been described and well-documented in people using synthetic cannabinoids um, with no uh, herbal input. So it's not related to pesticides, which have toxicities, but very different ones from what we see in CHS. There are also some theories out there. It could be, have something to do with hop, latent viroid. Right. However, to date, there is no virus affecting plants that's jumped to humans, number one. Number two, um, it's really a total leap in logic to think that this has something to do with hop, latent viroid. That's a problem, but it's not causing this problem. Yeah, and you mentioned that other non-cannabis CB1 agonists can sort of trigger this. What about endogenous uh, cannabinoids, endocannabinoids, anandamide, 2-AG? Um, you know, I know that those can sort of be elevated after exercise or something like that. Is there, are there any cases of that maybe triggering about? Uh, I guess that's possible. But again, we don't have a basis for saying that that's a factor. Um the place where you see an excess of endocannabinoid function is usually in relation to uh, metabolic syndrome or uh, type 2 diabetes. Um, and, you know, to date, I'm not aware of folks with those conditions um, uh, getting it from exercise, for example. Um, so again, that's a interesting theoretical question we just can't say that um that's a factor right now sure and now do folks who have chs do they have other 
um, endocannabinoid system related dysfunction after they've sort of developed the condition? Um, yeah, that's really possible. Um, something else we've noticed is a lot of folks with CHS have unhealthy lifestyles. Um, we've heard a lot about uh, junk food, um, uh, having a, a sort of American diet that's heavy on pro-inflammatory input rather than anti-inflammatory input. Mm -hmm. um, and again, use of other substances, uh, alcohol, tobacco, coke, opioids, um, again, a strong thread of uh, dependency on drugs. Okay. And now I know we touched on it before that, it, especially online, there is sort of a vocal group of folks who are sort of skeptical that CHS even exists. And I, I, in looking at some of the results from your um, your survey here, the folks who even have CHS are, are skeptical that THC could be the problem. Um, is that still the case? Is the tide sort of uh, changing a bit? Well, I can't remember the name of the movie, but Anthony Hopkins' character in this movie once told these kids, wishing does not make it so. Um, and that's certainly the case here. Um, I'm not sure how to phrase this, but um, folks with CHS as a group are often very skeptical of the medical community and what they've been told about this disorder. Um, there is no doubt in my mind that this exists. Um, we have shown with statistical significance difference between folks that express these problems as compared to folks who use an equal amount of cannabis that don't have the problem. There is a difference. This is real and needs to be taken seriously. And is this common amongst folks who use cannabis for medicine? Because um, I know that that can sometimes be in high doses. Sure. Uh, fortunately, much, much less often. Um, now, the reason is clear, and that is there's usually a big difference in dose daily dosing uh, between someone who's using recreationally, we'll call it, as, as compared to controlling symptoms, whether it be pain, spasticity, et cetera. However, we are aware of medical patients who have been affected. The numbers are very small, and I think it's usually attributable to the dose. Again, we suspect um, that um, inhalation places a higher risk as opposed to more steady oral dosing, for example. Um, so there's some risk if someone's susceptible, uh, but... Um, I'd say that numbers of medical patients who've been affected with CHS are very small. Okay. So, so sort of where do we go from here? Where do we go with this information? How should folks who enjoy cannabis sort of proceed with caution or? Okay. Well, a couple of things. First, um, people should be judicious in their dosing. Um, they should be aware that if they're using high potency material, they've got to use less. You know, um, um, I would hope that people would be satisfied with a certain level of high uh, and not push the limits to the stratosphere or beyond. Um, 
you know, um, how high can you get? Um, so that's one thing. The other thing, uh, different direction, where do we go from here in terms of additional research? Um, we are, again, putting together a consortium of folks where we want to get bigger numbers and really examine uh, this in um, a variety of different disciplines to see what else we can find out. Um, are there additional genetic associations? And I'll just mention one that's interesting. Um, in our survey, we asked about um, whether women who were affected, who had had children, had hyperemesis gravidarum, which is a morning sickness on steroids, whether they'd been affected with that during their pregnancies. And the numbers were very high. Um, recently, uh, genetic susceptibility to hyperemesis gravidarum has been associated. Now, we didn't see mutations on that gene, but we weren't looking for them either. Mm. Um, so having another uh, crack at this with larger numbers of people, we can hone in on that or see what other chance associations there may be because we found them already. We didn't know about the association with dopamine metabolism, nor with cholesterol metabolism. And again, um, beyond the issue of how much cannabis people use, these have important implications on a public health level. You know, what risks do people with these traits have? Um, you know, I, I think it goes without saying that in medicine, we need to be much more effective at prevention. It's always better to deal with the problem before it becomes acute or chronic um, and you know exceeds the threshold where it's affecting someone's uh, lifestyle. Um, so uh, having this knowledge may be a big advantage going forward. And Excellent. one other factor, Sure. There's a cost factor involved with this. I hadn't mentioned. Um, there was a study done in 2012, so you know, not even that recently, and they found then the average patient who received a CHS diagnosis had spent $96,000 in tests or ER visits and associated costs before they got the diagnosis. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, if we can identify this earlier, uh, it's going to be to everyone's benefit and pocketbook. Most definitely. And in circling back to sort of, you know, limiting one's consumption, I know that one thing that Dustin Sulak um, always talks about is sort of taking a tolerance break that, you know, whether it's weekly or ever, ever um, frequently to sort of reset one's tolerance so they don't need to use such higher doses. Uh, could that be a reasonable thing to, to do to try to prevent this? Yeah, it may well be helpful. And particularly in relation to medical users, he uses the resensitization procedure when he thinks that someone's take, taking atypically high doses to treat their condition. So very briefly, how it's done is abstention totally for 48 hours and then resuming at half the prior dose. Now, what's fascinating is usually the efficacy in treating symptoms is as good as it was at the higher dose. So wow. yeah, um, I think if people again are very <clears throat> judicious about 
how much and how often they're using cannabis, uh, there will be fewer problems. Excellent. All right. So winding down here, Ethan, uh, before I let you go, I want to give you a chance to plug any other resources that you think might be helpful for folks to learn more about this topic or um, get in touch with you or learn about the, the work that you're doing. Right. So, um, yeah, uh, about CHS, <clears throat> excuse me, there is a website, what-is-chs.com, whatischs.com. Um, there is information about the disorder there. There is a link um, to our article um, on this. Um, and also, if people are interested in getting the uh, screening test for CHS, there are links there to do that. And theoretically, uh, we would get some income from that, to be um, honest. Um, Additionally, um, all my papers, including two on CHS, are available at ethanrusso.org at the library tab. Um, finally, um, the website for our company is uh, credo, C-R-E-D-O-science.com. Excellent, Ethan. Thanks again for joining us on the podcast, and can't wait to see you down in Marco Island this May. Sure. Thanks to you, and I'll uh, see you then. All right. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Ethan Rousseau. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And thanks again to this episode's sponsor, the Cannabis Nurses Network. Our next episode drops March 6th. That's two weeks from today. In the meantime, go to canmedevents.com to learn all about our CanMed24 event. Speakers, poster presenters, networking events, panels, workshops, all the information is there at canmedevents.com. While you're there, also sign up for email alerts to get notified about all the announcements leading up to the event. And if you're planning to join us at CanMed24, do register for your ticket package as soon as you can because tickets are limited this year. I also invite you to follow us on social media. We are on Instagram, X, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Just search for CanMed Events. And lastly, we'd appreciate it if you rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you use to consume the podcast. Okay, that's it from us. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, be sure to join us for the next CanMed Coffee Talk.